Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been talking together about what Christians believe using the Apostles' Creed as our guide. And this morning, we come to that line in the Creed that says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and this is always a two-sided affirmation in our life and in our faith. I mean, we believe that we are forgiven of our sins by grace through faith in Jesus. Um, but of course, that's not the end of the story. Being forgiven means that we are people who forgive, too. Being forgiven and forgiving others are uh, inseparable in our faith. Jesus taught us to pray this way when he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he also taught us to live this way in a lot of places, including this wily and beautiful parable about a king and a couple of servants. So I'm going to read that for us now uh, from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. And it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang those words that we often sing before we read and hear and think about your word. And we ask that you would give our jaded senses light. <laughs> and so we ask that that would be true in whatever way it needs to be true for each of us as individuals. Some of us probably just gently and quietly Others, others of us may need to be shaken a bit, but we ask that in your mercy you would do that, that you would show us the grace of Jesus that forgives so that we can forgive. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
1995, uh, after apartheid had been abolished in South Africa, the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act was passed. And when that act was passed, it created a body that I'm guessing many of us probably have heard of called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, the job of that commission um, was to investigate and record human rights violations that happened between uh, 1960 and 1994. Uh, in some cases, uh, those who had been victims of the worst crimes were invited to public hearings to tell their stories. And in other cases, perpetrators of those crimes were called to the hearing um, to give their testimony to the crimes that they had committed. And once they had confessed their crimes, the criminals could then request amnesty from prosecution. Well, Phil Yancey, in his book, Rumors of Another World, tells a story about one of those criminals. It was a policeman named Vandebrook. He was invited to a public hearing uh, to confess his crimes. So he confessed that he and some other policemen uh, had shot and killed an 18-year-old man and then burned his body to hide the evidence. And then eight years later, he and some others went to that same house, that same home, and they took the boy's father. And they made his wife watch as they bound him and burned him like they had her son. He confessed to these crimes. Well, that mother, that widow, was in the room to hear that confession. She from whom so much had been cruelly taken. And she was given a chance to respond to that confession and the judge asked her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? What do you want? I mean, I can hardly imagine that moment, you know. I wonder uh, what I would have asked for, what I would have said, staring down that person who had taken so much from me. You know, what would you have said? When we've been wronged, what do people like us want? What do we want? Of course, I pray that none of us in here this morning have ever been anywhere near that kind of position that that woman was in at that hearing that day, but we, we have all been wronged at some point in our lives. That's the truth. And maybe you feel like you're in that place with someone as you sit here this morning. Someone, you know, maybe even someone who has close to you, has hurt you, or they've taken something from you or they've cheated you, or they have abused you, or they have acted like you don't exist. And I want to make sure that I say that the costs of those things are very, very real. They cost. 
The wounds that we have experienced at the hands of others often go deep. They have tentacles that reach out into every other relationship in our lives. They affect the way that we carry ourselves through our whole lives. Some of us can be paralyzed in anger over these things. Others of us harbor the fantasy that this wound and resentment that we're harboring will somehow make us stronger or serve us in some way. Others of us just don't know where to turn to get free, to find healing. So what do we want? You know, what did she want in the courtroom that day? Well, we'll come back to her story later. First, I want us to listen to Jesus' story and see if we can find our own places in it. So right before he told that story, Jesus had been just teaching the disciples about forgiveness and reconciliation. And Peter, you know, one of the disciples who's there, he hears something in Jesus' teaching that must have struck a chord with him. You know, I don't know if it was something new that Peter heard or if it was something that was just really unsettling about what Jesus said, but it struck a chord in him and it made him wonder something. And so in verse 21 of our passage, he he says, Lord, um, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? I mean, Peter, of course, is asking a really simple question. He's just asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? You know, how how many times? uh, Where where is that line where I go from being a really nice guy, which I definitely want to be, into being a dope? Is it seven times? And by all accounts, you know, Peter appears to be pretty generous here. It's not as if this question hadn't been asked before in religious contexts. It certainly had. And most religious teachers in Jesus' day suggested that the line was like three or four times. The thinking, the reasoning went, if someone keeps hurting you more than three or four times, then they're just a lost cause. So Peter, you know, he shoots for the perfect number, for seven He's wondering if that'll be okay. Is that enough? And I love Peter. I mean, I'm sure he felt very good about how he had formed that question. But Jesus says to him, Peter, 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 not seven times, 77 times. Some of our translations, of course, say 70 times seven. The point is not the math. The point is not that Jesus gives us a remarkably large number. The point is that Jesus wants us to stop counting. Because if we're counting, it's not really forgiveness. And so I just want to stop and say that that this is really, really good news for people like us. As unsettling as I find this teaching from Jesus to be, when I think about me extending grace to others who have hurt me, I have to be honest and say that as far as my need for grace goes, it is my only hope. (laughs) Because I don't know about you, but I am way past 77 or 490 or however many times I have needed grace 
And Jesus has been shockingly, unsettlingly lavish with me. And you too. And so this is really the point of the first part of the story that Jesus tells. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. We can't be totally sure because Jesus' parables don't often have exact analogies in life, but maybe he's uh, wanting us to think of a pagan king who is collecting tributes from his tax farmers. You know, every year they would have to pay up for the region that they were responsible for. That may be the case, but whatever the case, as they start, a guy comes in um, who Jesus says owes his master 10,000 talents. Now, this is the moment where Jesus is telling the story where everyone around him in, the, in that setting would have said, wait, 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 Jesus, that's crazy. And Jesus did this sometimes. You know, he would tell stories that outsized things, that exaggerated things for effect. And this story is definitely one of those times. I mean, 10,000 talents is somewhere between 30 and 100 million days wages for the normal worker. The amount of money that this guy owes his master is more than all of the money that was circulating in Israel at the time. So you cannot miss what Jesus is laying down here. This guy is hopelessly in debt. Innumerable lifetimes would be needed to pay it back, and this guy doesn't have that kind of time. There was absolutely nothing that he could do to pay it back. He could never, ever undo it. So the king does what was usual in those situations. He ordered this servant and his family and all of his possessions to be sold in order to begin to pay down the debt, knowing, of course, that he would only get the tiniest, tiniest fraction in return. But for the servant, I guess the thought of his family being sold into slavery was too much, so he does the only thing he could do in that moment. He falls to his knees and he begs, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. I mean, you can't blame this guy for trying, uh, you know, but all of the patience in the world would never have satisfied things. All of the time in the world would not have been enough time. He could never pay it down. It was ludicrous for him to suggest that he could. But that is what he asks for. And then comes the first twist in this story. The king turns everything upside down. Jesus says that he looked the guy at the guy. Literally what he says is his heart went out to him. And he had compassion on him and pity on him. <laughs> he had been asked for patience. He had been asked for time to repay. But he ignores the ridiculous nonsense about repayment. No time is needed. No patience is required because what the king gives in that moment is complete amnesty, total forgiveness. He forgives the debt. He releases his servant and sets him free to go, and that guy can skip away clear. Clear. 
and new. And whenever I think about this story or talk about it, I always remind myself, the debt doesn't just disappear. It's still there. It still costs. This is incredibly important, church. That debt remains. It is just that the king takes it on himself. He steps in and absorbs this incalculably large debt. He lifts the debt off of the back of his servant and he puts it on his own back so that his servant can go free. It does not cost the servant anymore. It costs the king. And so now is a good time for us to look through the thin veil between the story that Jesus is telling and the kingdom to which he said it could be compared. Church, our entrance into the life of Christian faith and all of our growing up in it hangs on knowing that we're that guy. We're that guy. The servant with the incalculable debt that we could never, ever undo. And I mean knowing it, not like knowing it like you know something you read in a book once. I mean really knowing it, like knowing it like when your head hits the pillow at night. And all the distractions are gone. You're not looking at your phone. You're not reading anything. The light's not on. It's just you in the dark. And who you are, who you really are, it all catches up to you and you're right there in it. I'm talking about that kind of knowing. And listen, if I can't face that debt, if, if you and I can't face that debt, if we cannot face that death, honestly, and call it what it is, then we're just going through life whistling in the dark. We're kidding ourselves. And of course we make all kinds of promises. Of course we do that. All kinds of promises to pay it down. All kinds of bargains. We'll do better next time. Tomorrow I'll be better. You'll see. We, we parade around all of the good stuff that we do in our heads. Of course we do stuff like that and we say stuff like that. We do that because it is existentially very, very hard to be that guy. It is intolerable and unspeakable. And so we do all kinds of backflips to feel better about it. But church, here is the good news. It's the best thing we will hear today, I promise. And that is that the king who is reflected at the heart of the story is uninterested in all of our ridiculous backflips and nonsense. He needs no bargains. He needs no patience. He needs no time. Because he has in love stepped in so that we can go free. Our debt does not cost us anymore. It costs him. And in love, he was glad to take it from us. 
And all we do is reach out in repentance and faith to cling to him. And of course we know who this king is. We know the king that's being reflected in this story. The apostle John, you know, who was there today, that day, listening to Jesus tell this crazy story. Later we'll call him Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate with the father. The atoning death, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so, church, that's why we say with humility, with gratitude, with joy, and with freedom, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because it's absolutely true. It is the good news for you and me forever. And in a way, Jesus has made the point with his story. You know, he's answered Peter's question. God isn't bookkeeping, Peter, and neither should you. But for Jesus, there is more to be said. It's about what it looks like to keep on being a bookkeeper after you know that that is not how God is with you. It is the second twist in the story. Jesus says that same servant walks outside. He runs across another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now that's not an insignificant amount of money. That's about three or four months worth of wages. It's a big deal, but it is, of course, a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck of the debt that he had owed. And so that's why it's so shocking when he grabs the guy. He grabs the guy and he says, pay what you owe. And the second servant, he pleads with the first servant. He falls down. He says exactly the same thing. Give me time and I'll pay you back. I'll pay everything back. But instead of coming to his senses, the first servant throws him in debtor's prison. The exact fate the exact fate he had just escaped. And so we come back to that question. The one that the judge asked that woman in that court. The question that rings in our heads when we have been hurt. What do I want? Sometimes I don't want to forgive. In other words, sometimes I want to make them pay. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only person here this morning who knows what that feels like. We don't have to be taught to do this. We just do it. We harbor resentment at someone who's genuinely hurt us or wronged us. Some of us can do that for years. Maybe we don't run around choking people, but we withhold kind words from them. Or we talk about them behind their back. Or we just act like they're not there. We want to make them pay. We do this in our marriages, we do this with our families, we do this with our friends. 
It is often true, right, that the ones that we love the most are the ones whose betrayals hurt us most deeply. A mom who made it really, really clear growing up that you could never meet her standards, and now when she calls, you just ignore it. A friend who betrayed a confidence, and they ask you for forgiveness, and you said, I forgive you, but you just can't help bringing it up again. Just, you know, joking around, just kidding about it. The guy who manipulated his way into the promotion that should have been yours, and you lay awake at night and you nurse revenge fantasies. Because they're going to pay. And Jesus graciously tells the story, he graciously tells the story to people like us so that we will come to our senses. <laughs> so that we'll ask, who, who is the one really who's paying here? Who, who is the one who is in prison? Who is the one who is not free here, really? It's so obvious when we don't forgive, it's us. <laughs> We're the ones in prison. And we know that this is true deep in our bones. We know it's true deep in our bodies. And that's why the ending to the story that Jesus tells, as dark as it is, it makes sense to us. It makes sense to us because it is a truth built into the fabric of the world by the Father. So when the king hears what happens, he delivers that first servant over into the life that he has chosen for himself. He's delivered to the jailers. And that cycle of bitterness and revenge and anger keeps circling around and around and eating us alive. So Jesus paints the second part of this picture for Peter and for the disciples and for us for one reason. So that we can be set free. As Robert Farrar Capon puts it, there are... No good guys. There are no upright, successful types who, by the dint of their own integrity, have made it into the country club in the sky. There are only failures raised up by the king who himself died that they might live. Only failures raised up by the king himself who died so that we might live. And taking Jesus' teaching here seriously means that we will agree that that is manifestly true. And, and when we believe it, I mean when we really believe it, that we're that guy with the debt we could never undo who has been raised up by the king, when we believe that, church, we have everything that we need, everything, to begin to forgive others. I am not saying that it's easy. It is not easy. And Jesus is not teaching us to accept the wrong that's been done to us or to tolerate it. He's not asking us or teaching us to excuse it or downplay it or sweep it under the rug or say that it's really no big deal. He is not teaching us any of that fake stuff. 
he is teaching us the real thing, which is stouter and more bracing and infinitely more healing than that. Because forgiveness looks at wrong in the eye and calls it for what it is. Forgiveness sizes up the cost of what has been done, and it takes that loss for the good of the other. And then we find for our own good, for our own health and healing and freedom. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? That's what the judge asked the South African woman whose son and husband had been brutally murdered. What do you want from him? She asked first that she would like him to come to the place where he had killed her husband and burned him so that they could gather up the dust and together give him a decent burial. Vanderbrook said he would. But then she added a second request. She said, Mr. Vanderbrook has taken my family from me, but I still have a lot of love to give. So twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and be with me for a day so that I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I want to embrace him so that he will know that my forgiveness is real. So while she was being helped by some people up to the witness stand to embrace him, some of the people in the gallery began to sing Amazing Grace. <laughs> but as Phil Yancey writes, Mr. Vanderbrook did not hear the hymn. He had fainted, <laughs> overwhelmed. Church, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we just simply ask again that you would work whatever it is that needs to be worked in us as individuals and as a family to believe that we're that guy with a debt we can't undo, who has been raised up by the king who gave his life for us. Father, we ask that we would believe that so that we can know that we are forgiven and then in turn that we can begin to extend the grace and the healing and the truth of forgiveness to other people, to this world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.